about 10 years ago, close to where I live, I was driving uh, nearby, and, and I saw a house being built. And as the months went by, I realized, man, these people are taking a long time to build this house. And the house was slowly get built, and it looked like it was finished. But now here we are 10 years later, and the house has never been lived in. It's empty. They didn't quite finish what they had started to build. And you would think, man, what a waste. Now today is Ascension Sunday, and Ascension time doesn't get the same credit that uh, uh, Christmas gets when we remember the coming of Christ to the earth. Today is when we remember and celebrate the ascension of Jesus, leaving the earth and sending the Holy Spirit. And at Christmas, of course, we celebrate it, rightly so. We give a lot of good gifts, and it's all a lot of fun. Ascension doesn't get the same due. Uh, maybe we should have ascension presents. I would be on board for that, sort of like Christmas in the middle of the year. Um, but it is Ascension Sunday. And without the ascension, Jesus' work isn't complete. It's like a house being built, but no one ever lives in it. It's like a glorious meal being prepared, but no one ever eats it. And it's good to remember that nothing that God does ever goes to waste. He always is a, has a perfect plan, and he achieves what he is going to achieve. And as we just saw in that video, the disciples weren't losing Jesus, even though they maybe momentarily thought they were, because they would be gaining someone so much more so. Now, we're going to read from Luke 24 today. Luke, of course, is the author of Luke. Luke was a physician, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes to the, the person he's writing the letter to, and he said, we have taken an account to write down all of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Luke is saying here that after the ascension, Jesus' work is not finished. His work continues on. It continues. That after the ascension, Jesus' salvation work explodes across the universe, if you will. And it's the work of a Holy Spirit that continues to this very day. So let's look at these words from Luke chapter 24. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returning to Jerusalem with great joy, 
and they were continually in the temple blessing God. There are three words I want you to think about while we hear this passage. Three words, word, witness, worship. Word, witness, worship. Today, the first one is word. Jesus said, the word must be fulfilled. I must fulfill all that has been written about me. In the Old Testament, in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of it must be fulfilled, he said. Now, the mathematics professor, Dr. Peter Stoner, and his mathematics students about 30 or 35 years ago, they had a project in mind. They said, what are the mathematical odds of one random human being fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah, all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, what are the odds that one person could fulfill them all? Well, there are at least 48 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. There's actually probably more, but there's at least 48. And here are just eight of them. Here are just eight. The time of his birth, he would be born in Bethlehem, he would be born of a virgin. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be mocked. His clothes would be gambled over. He would be crucified. He would be pierced. He would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. These are just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled. And so they determined for one random human being to fulfill just eight of the prophecies would be one to the uh, to the 1,017th power, or 10 to the 1,017th power. It's 100 million, 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 million to one, okay? That's just eight prophecies. Now, like you and me, when we were kids, we played the game Pin the Tail on the Donkey, right? Where you get blindfolded, and you get spun around, and then someone puts a sharp object in your hand, and you get pushed, and you have to find the spot, Right? on the donkey. He said that the odds of just fulfilling eight prophecies would be like blindfolding a person and pushing them out into the state of Texas. Texas is a very big state. And the state of Texas would be lined two feet thick with silver dollars across the entire state. And you would mark one silver dollar with an X. The blindfolded person that could randomly find that one silver dollar would be able to fulfill eight of those prophecies. How incredible is that? The word. All that has been written about him must be fulfilled. Well, then they would go on to say that in order to to fulfill 48 of those prophecies, the number would be one or 10 to the 10,157th power. To understand the size of this number, He said, take all of the electrons in the known universe and press them into a ball. He said, that number of electrons would not just fill up our galaxy. It would fill up the known universe. Blindfold somebody, put them on a space suit suit on them, push them out into the universe, and pin the tail on the electron. You would be the one to fulfill 48 of these prophecies in one human being. The word is about him. The word must be fulfilled, and it is Christ who has done it. 
I'm sure you're a very nice person and God loves you. But the word is not about you and it's not about me. The word points to Christ and it always has. And he said it must be fulfilled and it has been fulfilled in him. The word and witness, witness. He says here, you are witnesses of these things. And he empowers them to go and be a witness. He trusts them to be a witness. He trusts us to be a witness. Now, I got really good advice many years ago when our children were even younger from a parent that I have a lot of respect for. And she told me, you know, when your kid does something for you, like they, they put some dirty dishes in the dishwasher, just let them make mistakes. Let it be all inefficient and all over the place. Or if they mow the grass, it's okay if they miss spots and it's all haphazard, right? Just let them make the mistake because they're learning. You trust them. You don't want to micromanage them. And Jesus is saying to the, to the disciples and to us, you are a witness. I trust you to be a witness, to testify, to be an ambassador about me. Because as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he doesn't stop halfway and go, hey, you know what? I'm just going to, I'll just, I'm going to come back down there. I'm just going to fix it. You know what? I'll do it myself. I got this. I'm the son of God. I can pull it off. I'll micromanage you a little bit. No. He says, you are a witness. I trust you. In a world that maligns my name day after day, I trust you to be a witness. Despite our foolishness, the gates of hell still have not prevailed against his church, and they never will. And now we are his hands and feet, if you will, that Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with you and me. So we should not be ashamed to be identified with him. He trusts us to be a witness, even if we make mistakes. He trusts us and he sends us the Holy Spirit to empower us to know what to say and what to do at the right time if we're willing to be a vessel of his power and grace and love in the world. Now, what are we a witness to? Well, of course, we're a witness to Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. You could be a witness to your testimony of what he's done in your life. You can tell other people that and be a witness to how you run your business or live your life. But Jesus gives two specific words here, two words to be a witness to, repentance and forgiveness of sin. Repentance means to change your mind, to turn around or turn away from whatever the sin is. And forgiveness here means to let go, to send away, release, freedom, pardon. We're to be a witness of repentance, that repentance is a gift of God. Repentance is a good thing to confess your sins to God, which all of us have. And he says, we are called to be a witness, to tell others to repent because the love of God compels them to do so. And then forgiveness of sins. See, you and I, we can't really forgive ourselves. Only Jesus forgives sin. Only he can atone for your sin. And he says, go be a witness. Repent 
And after the repentance, there is forgiveness of sin. It's not forgiveness of sin and then repentance, although sometimes it may go that way. But repentance precedes the forgiveness. And maybe you're watching this today and you know you have sin that you need to repent of. You know that you need the forgiveness and peace of God in your life. And you don't know how to get it. It's as simple as saying a prayer and saying, God, I repent of my sin. Come into my heart and forgive me and cleanse me and make me new. And I lay it at your feet. I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that you're the son of God. And I receive your gift for me by faith, repentance, and forgiveness of sin. And part of being a witness is humility. That's an inherent part of witnessing, that you're not witnessing about yourself, you're not promoting your platform, you're not promoting your own name, that you exist to exalt and be an ambassador for another. And there's humility in that, and that's also a good thing, that when you let go of your life, you find your life, right? Humility. John Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist Movement, he was a humble witness to Christ. John Wesley, if you didn't know this, John Wesley was one of 19 children. You would think at about, you know, number 15, they may stop and go, you know, we have a basketball team at this point. We could probably stop. No, one of 19. His mother, Susanna, was one of 29 children. I had to look that up to make sure it was true. It's true. But John Wesley was a humble witness. He preached over 14,000 sermons in his life. Let that sink in, 14,000. He rode over 250,000 miles on horseback, starting churches, elevating the poor, forgiveness of debt, uh, preaching in fields and coal mines all over England, starting churches. The Holy Spirit animating him and moving him to change the world and be a witness for Christ, not just through his words, but through his actions. Now, at age 83, he became angry with his doctor for not allowing him to preach more than 14 times a week. At age 86, he wrote in his journal, I feel laziness creeping in. I'm tempted to rise after 5.30. A.M., A.M. He was a humble witness, and the best example of that is what's printed on the statue that commemorates him in England. And it says, Dear reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, stop and give God the glory. He's just a jar of clay like you and I, and we want to show that this power we have, it's not from us, but it's from God. And if you feel praised, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, do not. But give God the glory. For without God, his life would have been impossible. His ministry would have been impossible. He owed everything to Christ. And he was the witness to him. And we should be the same. If you feel constrained to praise the instrument, do not. But give God the glory if you're a humble witness. So there's word, witness, and worship. As I said earlier, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and as he wrote the book of Acts, you would think that, I think he kind of wanted to add to the ascension story some details maybe he had left out at the end of Luke. Because in Acts chapter 1, angels are involved. Angels appear 
two of them as messengers after Christ is ascended, these angels appear and they look at the disciples and they say, why are you just standing there? Why are your mouths hanging open and catching flies? You should be filled with glorious joy at this point. Don't be sad. Just as you saw him go, they say, you will see him return again one day to judge all the nations. He will return. See, but they were maybe initially sad. It's hard to see your loved one go, especially someone like Jesus. But these angels say, don't be sad. Don't just stand there. Worship. And they did. They did. Because maybe they started to realize that Christ is now actually more accessible than he was before. Because after the ascension, he's not bound by space and time any longer. He's saying, be full of joy in worship because you feel like you've just lost someone, but in reality, you have just gained someone. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew that if he didn't leave, that the Father wouldn't, had to send power to them from on high. And like the disciples, Mary didn't want Jesus to go either. She actually encountered Christ right after his resurrection outside the tomb. And she wants to cling to him and hold on to him. And Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, when I've read this over the years, I've always thought of it as sort of Jesus sort of saying, hey, 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 I'm wearing white linen right now. Don't get me all dirty. Don't mess up my suit, right? But I think what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying, hey, I'm holy. You can't touch me. Because he was interacting with people all the time after the resurrection. He's eating food. He's, he is walking through walls. But he's also interacting with people. He's physically present with them as well. I think what's happening in this moment where Jesus is saying to Mary, don't cling to me. See, God sees the heart. He doesn't just see the action. He sees the motivation behind the action. God sees our motives. And he sees Mary's heart. He sees her desperation, her grief. And in a sense, he's saying to Mary, don't cling to me. If you let me go now, Mary, you'll never lose me again. See, she needed to learn like we need to learn that with Christ's ascension, we're not losing him, but we're gaining the spirit of God, that Jesus is not evaporating into the ether but his work is actually expanding, that that the house has been completed and people can now live in it. The meal has been prepared. It's done. God does not waste anything. And just as he would leave, he will one day return. Now, the meaning of the word ascension, it's not just a spatial ascension, but it's also, we could really say, a re-ascension of his status, that he would ascend to heaven in in a glorified human body. He's perfectly God and perfectly man, still with the nail scars in his hands, and he now rules over all the universe. 
Now, I don't know about y'all, but the past many Sunday nights, I've been spending 9 to 11 p.m. on ESPN, and I've been watching the Chicago Bulls documentary about the, Michael Jordan. It's called The Last Dance. There's no sports going on right now, so it's been really fun to watch The Last Dance, and I love basketball, so it's cool to see like behind the curtain with these guys and, and hear about these sort of stories and a lot of soap opera, really, a lot of ego and and back and forth, and, but it was really interesting. And in the same way that Jordan would ascend to the basket and dunk the ball, well, he would also eventually ascend in his status as what many would say to be the, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Now, of course, Jesus' ascension is just a little bit more significant than Michael Jordan's. But Jesus' ascension is not just a spatial ascension, but it's also a reascension of his status as not just an earthly Christ, but cosmic, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That his ascension is not just space travel. It's not a rocket going off and all the disciples being blown backward. He is reascending into his eternal status as now the glorified Lamb of God, Son of God. Perfectly God and perfectly man, no longer bound by space and time. And he would ascend, as the scripture says, into heaven, into the throne room of God, and would take the place at the right hand of God the Father. And in Daniel chapter 7, a book of the Bible written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus, John Wesley and many other biblical scholars would rightly interpret Daniel 7 as a post-ascension Christ in the presence of God. Remarkable. Hear these words from Daniel 7. We get a picture of what, what happens right after the ascension. I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that will never be destroyed. As we see here, he is outside of space and time. And now Jesus is omnipresent. He, he can be anywhere in space and time that he chooses. He's not bound like we are at one point in time and space. He's exalted, son of God, risen Christ. And in Acts chapter 7, just a few chapters later, the apostle Stephen has a vision where he sees the ascended Christ. Stephen gives this incredible sermon before the religious Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And it's this amazing monologue and sermon that I recommend you read. And it's, it cuts to the bone so much for these leaders that they can't take it. And they stone him to death. But before they do, this happens. When they heard these things, the religious leaders became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, which is not what, this is not what they wanted to hear, by the way. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing 
at the right hand of God. And then these men took up their stones and Stephen became the first martyr of the Christian church on that day. But where did Stephen get that peace and that power? The scripture says his face glowed like the sun as he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand. We affirm this every week in the Apostles' Creed. We can begin to sort of forget what the power of these words are where it says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The right hand man. The right-hand person is the prime minister's seat. That's the seat of the person that really gets things done, of the person that's really in charge. An ascended, perfectly God, perfectly man, human being is now ruling the universe. Your prophet and your priest is also your king. Perfectly prophet, priest, and king. So whatever low Christology, whatever limp, low views of Jesus that we have, we need to toss those out and see that he is an exalted cosmic Christ that rules over all. The house has been completed and it's time to live in it. The meal has been prepared. It's time to enjoy it. The word is the living word and we're all witnesses and now we're called to worship. Now, these past many weeks, you could be living your life under quarantine or partial quarantine at this point, and you could be facing something in your life that you feel is just impossible, that there's no way out. Maybe you lost your job, you lost a loved one, you don't know what to do, and you feel like nothing is going to break it down. As we sing this last song, I want you to know that God can and will do amazing things in our midst if we will open our lives to him by faith, that he can do the miraculous in our hearts and lives, if we will trust him to do it, that he has ascended in heaven right now. And he has sent us the power from on high to help us in our time of need, to give us wisdom and to know what to do. And as we sing this song, don't just sing it, but sing it to him. See, say to him, Lord, I, I've seen you move the mountains. I've seen you do the miraculous. Will you do the miraculous in me? Will you move the mountain in my life? Please, Lord, I'm going to cling to you until you do the thing that you said and I know you can do. And whether it happens now or on the other side, his promises are sure. He always will fulfill what he has said he will do. The word must come to fulfillment. And no matter who you are or what you've done, he forgives you. There is repentance and forgiveness of sins. If you'll lay it down on his feet, God loves you just as you are. And he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. Let this song be the song from your heart as we sing this together.